You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Kevin Hemel. He's a historian for the United States Army, Go Army, and the world's foremost authority on the life, career, and legacy of General George S. Patton. Kevin is also a tour guide and historian for Stephen Ambrose's historical tours. He leads people on tours of General Patton's battlefields and the Normandy battlefield, particularly. This is on my bucket list, Kevin, for sure. His books include Patton's Photographs, War as He Saw It, and two volumes on General Patton's experience during World War II, the latest of which was just released on May 17th. He earned his master's degree in American history from Villanova. One to have to see if he roots for the uh, Wildcats in the basketball arena. Thank you, Kevin, very much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Were you in school for either of their national championships? No, I was not, but uh, I did celebrate the latter one because growing up in D.C., I was a big Georgetown fan, and that was gut-wrenching when they beat Patrick Ewing and the Hoyas. Uh, in mm-hmm. Yep, yep. But that last one, I was very much on board. Unfortunately, I had just taken on a job as the historian for the Air Force Chaplain Corps, and the chief of chaplains was a North Carolina guy. So that was a bit of an uncomfortable start to that job. I do remember that game in 1985 like it was yesterday. They shot like 90% or something like that in the game. And from outside the, the uh, key from the three-point range. I, was, I think that was like front page of uh, the Washington Post 
And I think, New, what was it? The um, USA Today said Villanova versus a god. When they, when they <laughs> and that, was, that just doomed Georgetown right there. I went to summer school at Georgetown in 1993. It's a beautiful place, beautiful campus. And yeah. uh, I was always tripped out to watch people do drugs on the exorcist stairs. <laughs> like, that is one like, of the big pulls when I take friends around the city. Everybody <laughs> wants to see the exorcist stairs. That's right. <laughs> Let's get into your uh, books and your writings and your love history. Uh, George Patton is, I would say he's, I guess... This is an opinion, so it's probably not wrong, but please disabuse me of it. The biggest legend out of World War II, the greatest yeah. legend. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's debate of whether he's the best general or not, but he is the most quotable, most most memorable. Uh, you know, he just sticks in the brain. Uh, he was very quotable. And, um, you know, the, the publication of his diaries and letters really kind of, you know, put a stamp on that, even though in my research, I've now found that his diaries were greatly embellished by his wife. Um, and that's basically what a lot of the concentration of Patton's War Volume 2 is about, is kind of getting that record straight. But uh, yeah, he leaves a mark. Uh, and like, there's almost no popular approach to World War II without mentioning his name. Even the thought of him going to the Pacific after VE day is so tantalizingly delightful. Like <laughs> that would have just been heaven to have Patton and MacArthur in the same time zone. Yeah, uh, definitely bumping heads. MacArthur was going to have none of that. You know, they, they <laughs> sent a list to, to MacArthur of names <laughs> of generals to send, you know, that they wanted to send over and he sent it back with Patton's name missing and said, all of these are approved. Like that was a real gentle swipe that we want nothing to do with George S. Patton. <laughs> two too big a personalities in one place. Well, what piqued your interest about about Patton? He certainly has been a target uh, for historians, subject matter for historians for decades. Why did he pique your interest, and and how does your scholarship and writing differ from previous chroniclers? So, um, my. My introduction, like just about everybody I know, was the movie Patton. Uh, it came out in 1970. I, I watched it with my father when I was young. And I was so fascinated, not just combat, but by the sort of everything he said was the opposite of what you think he'd say in that movie. Like he's seeing the Germans getting wiped out in North Africa. And he says, hell of a waste to find infantry. Like, wow, I never would have thought of it that way, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would just so fascinated by the character study and so started reading books on him in college. Um, another big pull for me when I was young, I grew up in Chevy Chase, Maryland. We had a lot of state department, CIA, government people, and just about everyone had a library in their basement or their living room. And so me and my friends were always pulling our parents' books down and looking at them. And one of my neighbor's fathers had a book called Soldiers of 44, and it was about this uh, artillery unit cut off in the Battle of the Bulge that capture a shot down German ME-262, the German jet. Oh, yeah, the, the jet. Yeah. Yeah, that we had never seen before. And they want to get it, you know, back to the American lines. And the Germans send some Tiger tanks out to get it back. And it just had these these elements to it, the Battle of the Bulge, the jet, the tank, you know, that just 
pulled me really into World War II. Um, and then the third thing that really did it was the Time Life series on World War II. I had read a few of them in high school. And then when I went to college, uh, the library had all of them. Now, this is going to sound really nerdy, but I would stay up studying late at night. And on my study breaks, I would read chapters out of the Time Life series on World War II. So, oh, yeah. The best part of finishing your, your collegiate assignments for a semester was that you got to read whatever you wanted once you turned in your papers. Yep. I, I did not spend any time on those steps in Georgetown. So um, <laughs> <laughs> you'd ask me about what makes my scholarship different. Well, you know, with the with, you know, Martin Blumenson's work, you know, mostly the patent papers. That's right. And, and he was the Carl, third army historian. Yep. And then Carlo Deste's great work, you know, uh, Patent Genius for War. Mm-hmm. The buzz was always like everything about patent has been done. There's nothing new to add. And so when I stumbled across Patton's photo albums in the Library of Congress, you know, I'm looking at these photographs he took with his own camera. And I was like, this is so cool, because as an historian, we're always trying to get into the heads Mm -hmm. of the people we're researching. And what better way to do it than to see exactly what they saw? You know, because every time he holds the camera up to his eye, you're seeing what Patton was looking at. And he wrote information in the captions that was not in diaries or letters. So it didn't change anything about Patton, but it added another layer. And so I was, and I thought that would be my contribution. And I'd continue to go on and do other things. But then Martin Blumenson, my mentor, approached me and he had encouraged me to write the book. And he said that he had been asked to write a little 100 page book on Patton and he just didn't feel like doing it. But that if I would do it, he'd work with me and we'd make this book. Oh, and terrific. I agreed. But I said, Martin, you have to write the conclusion. I'm not smart enough or good enough for that. You're the pro. And he agreed. But Martin passed away about two thirds of the way through the project. And so it really was a lesson to me that I had to step up, finish the book, write the conclusion. And then I figured I'm out. I'm done. I'm good. And then I met this troublemaker named John McManus in 2004. We were both (laughs) leading tours of Europe. And he said, you need to write the ultimate patent book. You need to, you know, somebody needs to do this. And of course, it's been done a million times before. Well, I, what do you, it's a stupid idea. But I started thinking about it. And what could I add to the narrative that's already there? And so what it is, I started going through soldiers' memoirs. Because I'd always been interested in reading soldiers' memoirs. And they'd meet Patton on the battlefield or somewhere. And so I think I went through like 2,500 soldier memoirs in the Library of Congress. Then I started going through their veteran history collection, I also went through the Army. The Army, for the 50th anniversary of D-Day, they sent out questionnaires to all the veterans at the VA. Um, It was a survey. And I think it was question 18A was, did you meet anybody famous? So I figured out every division that fought under Patton and went through every division's collection of those answers of 18A and found all these tiny stories about Patton. So I was really building a narrative without using his diaries or letters. You know, it was all through the eyes of the soldiers. But then I decided I'd make this a third person narrative on him and then combine the diaries and the letters. And what I, one of the big realizations I made was that Blumenson didn't use all the diaries and letters to make his patent papers. So, so many authors go to that as a primary source where fortunately mm-hmm. for me, I lived in D.C. I could go right over to the Library of Congress manuscripts room and go through the actual diaries and letters. And one other thing Martin didn't use was uh, scrapbooks. The patent scrapbooks were there, 
So anytime his name appeared in the news, you know, his wife would cut it out and put it in mm. scrapbooks. So I had all this ready-made research that no one had really touched before. And that was really the heart of, of the books. And then I said, well, I can't just tell a tale. I got to have a theme. And what I realized looking over all the material was this is a, this is an example of leadership. You know, everybody, you know, commented, Pat and chewed me out for this, or he complimented me on that or told us to take this hill. And I really got a feeling for a, a real grip on his leadership style and how he, how he fought the war. You said you were from Chevy Chase. I should mention that was Bill Hudnut, the mayor of Chevy Chase at any point, because he was also the mayor of Indianapolis. And I'm pretty sure that he was both. We did a podcast about uh, Mayor Hudnut's time here in Indianapolis. He's the mayor who brought the Colts to Indy from Baltimore. <laughs> and we should say that uh, John McManus, who was a podcast guest, a, wrote terrific book on the United States Army in the Pacific is the reason that Mr. Hemel is on the podcast. So thank you very much, John, for your kindness. What was inside Patton that drove him? Or was it more of an external drive, wanting to please others, to, to be seen as brave to others? Or was it just simply a combination? Yeah, I was going to say it's not one or the other. Uh, there was that drive to prove himself, um, to, to matter. Uh, and you don't see this until he's off the screen. You know, after Sicily, when he slaps those soldiers and he's, you know, kind of alone with his thoughts for a couple of months, he's terrified of being irrelevant. You know, uh, here is, you know, he's, been, he's dedicated his whole life to being a soldier, you know, the best soldier he can be. And he's sidelined for his personality lapses and he's just craving to make up for that. You know, I got to get back into it. Secondly, he was of the philosophy, um, you know, that that really came from the cavalry and then the, later the tank corps, that the faster you win the battle, the faster the war is over, the more lives you save. You know, there's no reason to let the war linger. Um, so in a way, he was trying to make himself obsolete, you could almost say, because he wanted to win the war and get it over with. You know, he wasn't trying to drag it out for any kind of glory. He knew, you know, that if you want to get it done quickly and save American lives, you take major risks. And that is something he's very critical of a lot of his superiors about is they did not want to take risks. Was Patton ever fun? <laughs> very much. He had a pretty sly sense of humor. Um, you know, there were times where, you know, he'd confront a soldier. I'm trying to think. Um he, he was giving out medals to a bunch of soldiers. I think it was the 5th Infantry Division in, you know, November of 45. And some guy got, you know, was getting a medal because he had knocked out some tanks. And he says, the only reason you're getting this medal is you're, you're so short, the Germans can't even find you. And he says, well, it's worked out for me so far, General. And everybody <laughs> froze. And then Patton broke out laughing. You know, there was another case in North Africa after he had pinned medals on guys, they were all the guys were kind of sitting around talking, and Patton snuck up behind one of them and says, "Ma'am, when you get home and girls see that medal on your chest, you're going to have ladies left and right of you." And the guy didn't even realize it was Patton. Um, and then the third example uh, during the siege of Bastogne, when Patton is trying to get his Third Army driving up to relieve Bastogne, and they're dropping airborne, you know. Um, equipment to the to the paratroopers and the tankers below 
Uh, Patton is furious that the, the ice prevents takeoff one day of the resupply. And he goes to the officer in charge of it and starts bawling them out. He's like, do you have a plan to fix this? He goes, yes, sir. The weather's going to be better tomorrow. We're going to fly him out. And Patton pauses. He goes, are you scared of me? And the guy says, yeah. And he goes, are you married? The guy says, no. He goes, well, tell you what, when this war is over, you go home and get married. And there's nothing that I could ever say that will terrify you as much as a wife. So, <laughs> what, about the, what about the story about the telegraph line? The story about the telegraph line? No, the, the guy, guy fixing the telephone pole or whatever. He's, he's, he's fixing the wiring in, in North Africa in the middle of the desert. And Luftwaffe planes are kind of buzzing overhead and everything. And Patton shouts up to the guy, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm trying to fix the, the line here. He says, well, isn't that kind of dangerous? Isn't that bothering you, those planes above you? And the guy says, not as much as you're bothering me. And Patton just laughed and got in his command car and drove away. <laughs> that's that's my favorite. There you go. Uh, what, you know, one of the things that comes through in the movie, and I'll ask you a couple more specific questions. Uh, questions about the, the movie, which is brilliant, won Oscars for several people, including I get it Fran- all the time, <laughs> including Francis Ford Coppola. Most people don't realize he won the mm-hmm. Oscar for screenplay. Um, was Patton and reincarnation? I find it, you know, when I first saw the movie, I was born in '67, so I probably saw the movie the first time in the late '70s. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't really click, but as I went through college and went through graduate school and, and watched the movie again, it, it, this reincarnation belief was more meaningful. Was was that something that he truly believed, or was it just part of burnishing his own image as a warrior? So he never actually used the term reincarnation. I don't think he understood that, but he did keep saying that he was here in these places in the past. I can give you a few examples. And Martin Blumenson at first said that it was the result of too many horse kicks from playing polo. Uh, that's kind of where he had a real famous one where he had gotten injured in a polo accident. And then about three weeks later, he was riding with his wife and he said, oh, my God, it was so cold, so cold. And she goes, do you mean Moscow, the retreat? And he goes, yeah. And then he kind of snapped out of it. And he's like, oh, geez, I've, you know, I've been I've been concussed for the last two weeks, you know. But there was an incident in his childhood where he pushed his um, his sister in a wagon down a hill to reenact the battle. And uh, <laughs> the, the wagon smashed into a fence guarding these ducks and the ducks went out all over the yard. And the mom came running at him furious and she said, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I was reenacting like Charles the Bald. And she's like, why? He goes, because I was there. You know, so as a little kid, he's putting himself in there. And there, I mean, and I just can't explain, I cannot explain some of the stories. In World War One, he was supposed to go to see, you know, where his tanks were going to be. And he asked an officer, he goes, if I go up to the left, that's that's where the, the chow line is. And they're like, no, but there's an old Roman, you know, uh, cafeteria there, so, you know, mess hall. Mm-hmm. And he says, and if I go over to the right, that's where the guy's barracks are. And they're like, no, but there is an old Roman barracks. So that was odd. And then the one I... Um, use all the time. Uh, in 1945, uh, he goes to Regensburg, or also known as Radisburg, near the Danube. Yeah. And as they're crossing the Danube, he says, you know, I remember crossing this thing. Uh, and where we crossed, there was this big boulder. And standing on top of it was Napoleon saying, come on, hurry up, get across. And Charles Codman, his age, is like, the old man is crazy. He do not know what he's talking about. <laughs> 
And the next day, Cobman went down along the river and he found this huge boulder by the river. So can't explain it. You're listening to the Leaders of Legends podcast. Our guest today is Kevin Hemel. He is a historian for the United States Army and author of really the definitive biographies of General George S. Patton. Was Patton ever going to be anything except a soldier? You know, I've joined the Army. I was in the Army from 87 to 90. It wasn't a hard decision, but it was, I never felt predestined, especially since both of my parents were in the Marine Corps and me joining the Army was a profound disappointment. Uh, but was he ever going to be anything other than a soldier? No. Um, his prejudices were a little too much on his sleeve. Uh, he was very anti Semitic. Uh, which was not very popular at the end of, at the conclusion of World War II, mm-hmm. um, and he he harbored uh, racism on d- to different races. He believed that only whites could really rule, um, and uh, and you know, granted that was the belief of a lot of politicians and generals at the time and people. But at he the was time. southern in his upbringing and outlook. Is that fair to say? Yeah, he was raised in California, but his family had come from Virginia mm-hmm. and all of his ancestors and relatives had fought in the Civil War on the Confederate side, um, but really did not have a desire for it. Um, you know, he talked about wearing a short coat as soon as he retires so everybody could kiss his <laughs> rear end. He didn't use that word. Um, but, but No wonder he, people compare him to Bobby Knight. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, Bobby Knight could be a little unstable. Um but yeah, and, and that, I should mention that, and Patton's own mental stability was something brought into question, especially around 45. Mm. Um, but he would have these temper explosions all the time. That was normal for him. Um, but no, just no desire for it. I don't think he had the patience of poli- for, to be a politician. Um, oddly enough, you know, he criticized the press a great deal, yet he would hold a lot of off-the-record press conferences. And the press followed his lead. He said, you know, you can't use my name. Uh, just say a high ranking officer in third army. And they followed suit. And sometimes he would use it to his advantage. You know, before the Mets campaign, he actually showed the press a map of what he intended to do to encircle Mets. And he says, I want you guys to, you know, put out a story that I'm fainting. You know, I'm just doing a little faint. And they acquiesced because they knew the Germans, you know, were all ears. And at that time, we knew that our, you know, the entire country's back was against the wall and we needed to win this war. So, you know, I thought that was a very interesting part of his personality, because I think when people think about him, they think of his disdain for the press. And really, it it was more of a show thing than a reality. West Point shaped him like no other. Mm -hmm. But he didn't get in originally. He wanted to get in, but did he go to VMI and then he went to West Point? So he was an alternate, you know, uh, when mm-hmm. he applied for West Point. His father had been in politics for a while and never really uh, won any elections, but was well connected in the California political scene. Um, so that helped him greatly. So uh, went to VMI and, you know, had taken the test. In fact, I think at VMI, he had to come back and take the test again for West Point because you have to take it in your home state. Um, and he was, a, a you know, almost a straight A student at VMI. Uh, but then he gets accepted to West Point and struggles incredibly uh, with math and anything math related. Um, a lot of historians go back and forth of whether he was dyslexic. I say definitively he was. I'm not a doctor, but I am a dyslexic. And I recognize a lot of the patterns, the mm. frustrations, things like that. 
Um, and, and, you know, West Point really kind of exposes that. He has to repeat his freshman year. Um, I think everybody probably listening knows that the service academies are not a picnic. They're very difficult. Uh, and so the idea of staying in a service academy for five years instead of four has got to be hard on somebody. In fact, after he repeated his plebe year, as he, he progressed, they finally gave him a military promotion. They, they gave him this rank of like, um, it was like captain sergeant. It was a rank that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> not cap, not corporal captain like in mm-hmm. MASH. But um, he, and it kind of went to his head. He said when he would look at plebes, he would just see red. You know, and he was yelling at everybody so much that he would yell in his sleep. And so they kind of had to take the job away from him. Like, this kid's a little off base. And so, but he realized that and kind of readjusted his personality and was able to graduate. But yeah, he really, he struggled, but it wasn't through laziness. You know, he really put himself, you know, he really made the effort. Just the dyslexia was battling against him. How soon after West Point, after he graduated, did he connect with a man who really shaped his military career in many ways? And that's General John J. Pershing. Well, I'll tell you, John J. Pershing, you know, people always ask me who is Patton's military hero in history, and it's Napoleon, but who shaped him the most, and that was Pershing. So what happened was Pershing was preparing to go down into Mexico to pursue Pancho Villa, who had raided across the border. And Patton just, you know, he's sending telegrams and letters saying, hey, I really want to be a part of this. And Pershing's busy putting this force together. He doesn't doesn't have time for a young lieutenant, you know, who's demanding his attention. And so finally what happens is Patton goes and knocks on his office door and Pershing answers and Patton makes his plea. And Pershing says, I got a hundred lieutenants wanting to come along. Why should I pick you over any of them? And Patton says, because I want it more than any of them. And that impressed Pershing. Pershing had kind of done the same thing during the Spanish-American War to get himself into the fighting. So he brings George on as a sta- in a staff position. And this doesn't hurt you militarily in your career. Starts dating Patton's sister. Right. And... Um, so that probably helps him a great deal. Once they get into Mexico, though, Patton gets tra- gets himself transferred to a cavalry unit. And it's in that capacity that he's out one day getting food for the unit in, in two cars. He's with a couple of soldiers. And when they realize that one of the lieutenants to Pancho Villa, a guy named Cardenas, is in a ranch, they basically do a pincer movement with the two vehicles. One pulls up to the front, the other pulls out in the back. And Cardenas and two of his lieutenants, I guess, come charging out on horses and Patton guns them down with the other soldiers. Uh, Patton cuts two notches on the ivory handle of his pistol (laughs) because of what, during the, the, you can say a Mexican shootout during the shootout, Patton runs out of bullets and has to duck and reload. And he said that the powder from the Adobe wall was getting hit. And so all this powder is falling on him and he swore never to be caught with only one pistol. So he buys a 357 Magnum to go along with his Colt. And that's the, the two famous ivory handled pistols, which, by the way, in photographic evidence and in Patton's writing, he only wears in North Africa and only really in Morocco. He always he resorts to just one, one pistol after. That. And I've interviewed tons of veterans from Europe. And they're like, and I saw Patton with his two ivory handled pistols. And I said, actually, it was only one. And they go, oh, OK. 
you know, but they're so because of the movie, they're so melded onto that idea of two pistols. It's during World War One or the Great War uh, that Patton really makes his mark as a combat warrior. Mm-hmm. So, two quick questions. One is, please talk for a minute about his exploits. Sure. In World War One and his continued relationship with Pershing. And secondly, during the Second World War, when he is exhorting his troops to take that hill or attack the enemy, do you think the soldiers were aware of how brave Patton personally was, not only in World War One, but exposing himself to fire? in world war ii and did that make a difference did they say to the point well if the general can stand out here then so can i right um i'll just say that you know again just like going into mexico he becomes part of pershing staff and what everybody in the army wanted was an infantry regiment that's where you prove yourself as an infantry regiment leader and Patton has several opportunities and he turns them down because he hears of this new innovative weapon on the battlefield called a tank and he wants to lead the tanks. And that's exactly what happens. And his first rule is if a tank unit is going to have anything, it's going to have discipline. So he makes sure that he has, you know, and he gets a lot of Harvard and Yale grads, a lot of these guys coming out of college from Harvard and Yale. So he has a very smart unit to begin with. And he is unrelenting with the discipline. Um, so when they finally go into battle, a place called Saumiel in September of 1918, um, he watches the tanks roll off and he's in communication with his boss, with his commander. And then he realizes that communications are spotty. So on foot, he advances. And what he comes to find are his tankers are stuck at a bridge because they've heard it's mined. So he doesn't order them across. He goes out and walks across the bridge to prove to them that there's no mines there. He then climbs on one of the lead tanks and it takes him into this town called Penn's which, um, you know, what he realized, once they come out of it, well, they, they go into pens, he jumps off and, and, you know, he tries to chase some Germans out of some houses. Um, he makes scant reference to that. He gets back on the tank. They're rolling forward and he notices the paint on the side of the tank is starting to chip off and realizes it's machine gun fire. So he jumps off the tank and now he's stuck because he doesn't want his men to see him retreat. He can't, an officer cannot let the men see him walking backwards. So what he does is he times the machine gun bursts to walk at an angle. And he doesn't want to run because that would be cowardice. But by using angles, he eventually gets back to where he needs to be. Um, But it shows right off the bat that he's going to lead from the front. Um, I can add that he actually meets Douglas MacArthur on a hill outside of Penn's. There's two towns, Essie and Penn's. Mm. Um, And the two of them start talking on this hill and, as, and the soldiers are all kind of the infantry, 42nd infantry is walking by, then the tanks are going by. And a marching barrage starts making its way towards them. And everybody ducks except MacArthur and Patton. And they're looking at a map. And Patton later says, neither one of us really cared what the other one was saying. We just knew that we couldn't duck because that would be a bad sign to the men. So right off the bat, you know, he's leading by example. And then What's going to happen to him a month later is he's going to be doing the same thing, going forward, uh, digging out trenches that are blocking his tanks, you know, cutting down the walls of them and everything. And as his tanks run out of gas, 
he realizes he's got to lead a charge on his own and he doesn't even have one of his ivory pistols with him this time. He's only got a, a walking stick. And so he leads some of his staff in an attack and that's where he gets shot in the lower abdomen and goes down. And so he's not going to be able to really be part of the November 11th celebration of the end of the war. He's going to be recovering from that wound. So yeah, for, for only about two weeks of combat, he makes the most of it. MacArthur, I think had seven silver stars. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. The number of decorations. And if you've seen the movie, they very, very uh, wisely start the movie with him not wearing those ribbons, George C. Scott, but wearing the actual medals. Oh, yeah. In fact, when Patton got wounded, he got the Distinguished Service Cross, which is a high honor. But he put in paperwork. He wanted the Medal of Honor bad. (laughs) (laughs) He should have gotten it for the relief of Bastogne. You know, I thought that was an incredible act of bravery, getting his army up there to Bastogne and relieving it. But I digress. We can have you on again and we can talk about MacArthur's Medal of Honor. Sure. And, and the fact that he didn't want Wainwright to get it and then Wainwright got it anyway. Yeah, uh, that was a sticky, sticky wicket. Let's talk a little bit about tanks. So after World War One, up until World War Two, Patton is is the apostle of tank warfare i think it's fair to say he's not the only one right eisenhower is very interested in it and then there's yep. there's other ones was it i don't know fox connor was very interested in them but yeah there was a significant number of people who said look this this is to land warfare what the airplane is to naval warfare how did Patton spend his time let's say between 1918 1939 and and how did he influence the army's adoption of the tank in armored warfare sure so um first he goes to camp colt we you know basically fort meade today in maryland where the tank corps has come after world war one that's where he's going to meet dwight d eisenhower uh they're going to start experimenting with basically what is blitzkrieg tactics you know not incorporating tanks into the infantry but having them act independently but at this time the army has to shrink you know, because it's got a, it's got a, I don't want to say bloated budget, but, you know, it, incre- it increased its budget for World War One, And so for the 1920, uh, I guess, National Defense Act, they shrank the budget and got rid of the tank corps. And Patton and Eisenhower have been writing papers, you know, for journals and things like that, uh, you know, kind of exalting the, the abilities of tanks. And the word came down, you know, cut that out. There's not going to be any more tank stuff. So Patton returns to the cavalry. Eisenhower to the infantry. Um, and back then, the way the army was set up, you know, you had the head of artillery, the head of infantry, and the head of cavalry. They were these sort of different fiefdoms. And the uh, general in charge of cavalry hates tanks so much that he basically eliminates the word tank from the U.S. Army. They have to say armored cars. And that used to confuse me in, me in my research when I'd read about armored cars. I'm like, I don't remember any armored cars. I remember tanks. And it's because of him, I think his name was Her or Kerr, um, who disallows the use of the term tank. And so Patton really kind of returns to the cavalry and is enjoying himself in the cavalry life. But it's a group of other officers, mostly cavalry, that realize, you know, we've got to research this and figure it out. And so to get away from Fort Riley, which is the, the home of the, the cavalry, these guys go off to a, uh, a small Civil War camp called Camp Knox, and get, get away from Kerr and start, you know, figuring out tank tactics and things like that. And of 
course, it later becomes Fort Knox. But Patton is really not a part of that. And it's not until they start having army maneuvers and things like that, like the famous Louisiana maneuvers in 1940. It's in those early maneuvers that Patton's working as a referee and sees this idea of his from decades ago on the battlefield. And he's like, I want back in. And so, and, and his name is what everybody associates with tanks because he was basically the head of the only tank corps in the U.S. Army in World War I and got lots of press for that because that was the cutting edge. And so he really, he does, he's in the initial stages early on, but 1920, he backs out, goes back to the cavalry. And then it's not until the late 1930s, really 1939, 1940, that he comes back in raring and strong for armor. Is the credit he gets, the notoriety he gets for influencing the tank mentality, the adoption of it, the strategy, the tactics, is it legit? It's not overhyped? He deserves his I would say a little accolades? Overhyped. I would say it's a little overhyped because it was those other officers who kept the ball rolling. In fact, one of them, uh, General Grow, will later go on to command the 6th Armored Division, and he was really part of that innovative use of tanks idea. Um, and so that, that small brain trust, those guys go on to have elevated positions in the army, but nothing like Patton. Um, but, you know, at times of war, you need a hero. And so they, and he would say things like, you know, hey, I'm only representing a larger group. Mm-hmm. You know, he was actually humble about that kind of stuff. But he was, you know, he was the guy that had to write the manuals in 1918. Uh, so, yeah, in some ways, yes, he does deserve credit. But there were a lot of people working on that when he had stepped out for about a decade. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is Kevin Hemel. He's an historian for the United States Army, and he is, by everyone's declaration, the world's foremost authority on the life, career, and legacy of General George S. Patton. And we are discussing all three on today's episode. Obviously, I want to get into his World War II exploits, but I'll talk personalities real quick, if that's okay, Kevin. Sure, yeah. Break so I'm just going to say some names, and you tell me how they got along and what influence and various other fights uh, could have happened between Patton and these folks. You got to start with uh, Eisenhower. Eisenhower sure. seemed to have looked up to Patton in those inner war years as like mm-hmm. a mentor or an older brother or something. Some of the letters that Eisenhower wrote to Patton are, I mean, it's like Bobby Brady writing to Greg Brady, right? It's just <laughs> some of the, some of the, the tone of it is unbelievable. And then, and obviously, World War II brings them together and then eventually pushes them apart. Sure. Well, remember that Patton had all this combat experience from World War I. Eisenhower did not. Uh, he was back in the United States. And so they meet after the war and their wives got along very well, too. Um, and so they spent a lot of off time together, dinners, hanging out, shooting, things like that. Um, and 
Eisenhower wanted to join Patton's armored forces early on. He had been out in the Pacific under MacArthur, had, you know, not been getting the kind of promotions Patton had. And so when he came back to the United States, he really wanted to be part of our Patton's, you know, I guess it was the second armored division at the time. Uh, but he gets, you know, placed uh, other places. But then Eisenhower's star shoots up, you know, General George Marshall, the chief of staff of the army, makes him the commander of the attack going into North Africa. And so from what I've read in Patton's letters and diaries is he starts off with a great deal of respect for Eisenhower. Then it starts to chip away, but he would always say things like, you know, Eisenhower doesn't understand what's going on on the front, but I have to admit, I don't think anybody could, else could do the job he's doing. Because, you know, Eisenhower had one arm doing the diplomatic stuff with Churchill and de Gaulle and all these politicians and the other arm he's using to, you know, fight the war. But as time goes by, especially in Sicily, Patton starts to become very critical of Eisenhower without that caveat that no one else could do his job. And what it really, and it took me until looking at, you know, Patton in November and December of 44, what I realized that there were two things he would hold against his peers. One, if they did not have World War I combat experience, and two, if they had not graduated from West Point. And so, you know, he would be on the battlefield. He was, he was, you know, revisiting his old battlefields at Saint-Miel from World War I during World War II. And he said, in the distance, there's this monument that Eisenhower helped make because Eisenhower was on the uh, Battlefield Commission, the, the Battlefield Monuments Commission. And he said, that's as close to the war as he's ever going to get. And because of that lack of experience, there's going to be a lot more casualties. So he really does get critical of Eisenhower, but never in public and never disobeys an order from Eisenhower. He knows that Eisenhower has his power over him. So in his letters and his diaries, he gripes about Eisenhower, but he never shirks an order. And whenever Eisenhower visits, they usually spend, you know, they stay up late having drinks, talking, doing war stories. I'll ask you some specific questions about the slapping incidents sure. here in a few minutes. But I, our, whatever he told, I'm going to make an assertion here to the world's foremost authority on George Patton. So you just, you just, you just be ready, ready, and you're ready to tell me. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. As much as he may have privately reprimanded Patton by this, I mean Ike. There was never intention to send Patton home, was there? No, no. Um, Eisenhower knew he needed him for the war. So after the slapping incidents, he, he never said, you know, George, you're out of a job. He said, George, don't ever do that again. You know, and Patton really brought it on himself thinking, oh, my God, I'm irrelevant. I'm out of it. And started drinking way too much, was emptying other officers liquor cabinets, you know. But every time Eisenhower would see him, like usually on his way to a Cairo conference or another conference with Roosevelt, when he would pass through Italy, he would say, George, be ready because I got an, I got an army for you, you know, and I'm going to need you to lead it. He never wavered from that. He always and Patton was like, he's making this up. He's sending me home. You know, like he just wouldn't believe it. And then the second thing that gets Patton in trouble is a speech at Nutsford, where not only does the press fail to mention that he does mention the Russians, but it's just the fact that it's exposed that, you know, hey, Patton was here in England because Eisenhower wanted him to keep quiet. You know, that's his secret weapon against the Germans. And so when Pat, when Eisenhower finds out that Patton's made this gaffe and it's been exposed, he's furious. 
But he writes a letter to George C. Marshall saying, you know, do you have any, what do you weigh in on? You know, I know I have to make this decision, but what's your point of view? And Marshall basically gives the green light to keep Patton. He says, okay, Ike, your decision is to whether or not to take our most experienced general and send him home and replace him with a green general who doesn't know anything. Oh, and Patton is, and this is what they thought at the time, our only general who has fought and beaten Rommel or keep him. You know, so he basically makes it a non-decision. Do we get rid of our most experienced, best general mm-hmm. and replace him with a green guy that's never seen combat or do we keep him? And when you put it like that, it's not a tough decision. But at the end of the war, Patton is, sees the concentration camps and tells Ike, you have to, you have to see these. Yep. But then while Ike is touring one of the concentration camps, Patton says something anti-Semitic or, or dismissive. And and Patton says, shut up, George. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, It wasn't while they were touring. It was uh, Patton enrolled by a concentration camp, which, you know, the, the army went into, they brought in hospitals, you know, evacuation hospitals. And um, they brought them a lot of, I guess what we call today, porta potties to set up. But the people inside them, which we're now referred to as displaced persons or people, they were so weak of all these years of living hand to mouth, they're not setting them up. And Patton sees that they're not being set up. And he says, you know what? We can't help these people. We need to just board up all of these concentration camps and set them on fire. And that is really what is going to make him lose command of Third Army. And that is where Eisenhower tells him to shut up with all of those kind of comments and realizes that Patton, he just can't keep him around anymore because he's, he's repeatedly, you know, speaking against Eisenhower, uh, just making gaffes. In fact, Eisenhower tells his son, I didn't fire George for what he said. I fired him for what he's going to say next. <laughs> and I, I should caveat that. That's a lot, in a lot of the materials I've read. I'm still working on volume three of Patton's War. I've got the first two volumes out. So I haven't done my own personal research on that, but that is what I've come across in my own in, in the secondary sources I've read. Is that encounter between Ike and Patton by the concentration camp the last time they saw each other, or was there one more when he was relieved? Yeah, so uh, they relieve him of Third Army. They put him in charge of Fifteenth Army, which is really writing the history of the war in Europe. And there is a inter uh, inter unit football game in Germany, and Eisenhower comes to watch the game, and Patton sits next to the to him, and the crowd starts cheering outside the stadium. And so Eisenhower goes and he waves to the crowd and they all start chanting Patton, Patton. And he turns to Jordan, they want to see you more than me. And so Patton goes and waves. And that is the last time they see each other. There's a beautiful picture, the photograph, which uh, which I hope is in your third volume. <laughs> Working on, I'm on chapter three. I haven't gotten to the photos yet. <laughs> of Eisenhower visiting Patton's grave. And I think it's in Luxembourg. Is that right? Yes. I'm Luxembourg. Where he's. Eisenhower standing over it, and there's a picture of Eisenhower and and Patton's cross in the same frame. It's a I always would love to know what Eisenhower was thinking at that moment. Um, I'm going to put my best research people on that. Um, I can tell you that he wasn't able to attend Patton's funeral. 
Uh, he had just taken command. Uh, he had just replaced George C. Marshall as the chief of staff of the army. I mean, that day, uh, the day of the funeral. So he wasn't able to attend. Um, in fact, uh, Walton Walker, one of Patton's corps commanders, uh, uh, was late on arrival. And it was raining so hard during the funeral that his plane was circling above and couldn't land because of the clouds. It was a, a very difficult day. And in fact, one of the um, veterans on one of my tours when we went to Ham Luxembourg, he had gotten there the day after. And he said that the field was just a field of mud. In fact, the big problem was Patton was buried just in a common grave at the mm. bottom corner of the cemetery. And in the decades that followed, so many people were walking through the cemetery just to get to his grave that they were tearing up the turf. So what the, the cemetery officials did, they moved him to the center of the, of the cemetery, didn't solve anything. People were still trekking. <laughs> so what they finally did is they put him at the very head of the whole cemetery and laid down some you know concrete slabs. Uh, so that people wouldn't tear up the grass. And it's, you know, that's where you go when you're visiting Ham Luxembourg. Everybody goes to visit George's, uh, General Patton's grave. Sorry, I've gotten too casual with him over the decade. <laughs> well, A, I can't wait. And B, speaking of casual, I love the fact that there seems to have been, and disabuse me, please, a soft spot on the part of George Marshall when it came to George Patton, he would call him Georgie. Yeah. Which I just would have loved to have been <laughs> present one time that Marshall really, despite Patton's problems, just really had a soft spot oh, for him. Yeah. Is that a fair well, comment? Yeah. And I would say almost a friendship because, again, one of those career things that really help you out when George Marshall was made chief of staff of the army, and I think he was promoted two stars over his superiors and deservedly so he was a br brilliant man uh he goes to fort meyer you know where, where the chief of staff resides and his house is under construction so Patton, who is with the cavalry that invites marshall to stay at his home while his house is being refurbished that's not a bad thing to do to your commanding general um and they had known each other peripherally through the years so he's got that going for him. And when Patton first gets ready to ship out overseas to go to North Africa, he sends two of his air conditioners, which is a big deal in the 1940s to have air conditioning, sends two air conditioners to Marshall's house. So, yeah, he George Patton was no dummy when it came to uh, to promotion and uh, good standing in the army. In fact, Martin Blumenson told me the story that when he was researching, you know, Patton, when the family gave him the letters and the diaries, um, he contacted one of Patton's daughters and he says, you know, I hate to say this, but your father was a bit of a bootlick, you know, someone who <laughs> will do anything to get promoted. And uh, Ruth Ellen said, oh yeah, he was great at that. You know, no denial whatsoever. Patton and Bradley. Okay. Um, Mutual respect early on, again, um, gets a little frustrated with Bradley and Sicily. Um, you know, he basically has to take a road away from Bradley and give it to Montgomery because he's ordered to. And Bradley feels like Patton didn't fight hard enough to keep the road. Uh, but having read the notes of the meeting, Patton did fight hard, but realized he was having a losing battle against two British generals, Montgomery and Alexander. So that kind of starts the rift between the two of them. 
Um, Bradley gets command of all troops in Europe going in, you know, in England going into Europe. And Patton realizes he has got to toe the line and be flexible, you know, that he's now the, his subordinate is his superior. And he actually, I think he does a pretty good job of it. Um, uh, one of Patton's officers told Bradley after the war, he said, you know, uh, Patton, he would criticize all generals except you out loud. He never badmouthed Bradley out loud. But in his diaries and letters, it does reveal that he just feels that Bradley's not a risk taker. He's a good man, but not great. So that was kind of his general feeling towards Bradley. Now, Patton had to deal with you know, Eisenhower, who was his subordinate, at least with his inferior in rank, if not his direct subordinate. And Bradley, who was his subordinate, subordinate in North Africa, where he has two stars and Patton has three. Mm-hmm. Do you give him high marks for being able to accept this situation that two men who were certainly not the combat soldier he was by any stretch, yeah. let alone superior in rank, that he could serve under them and while maybe chafing privately could carry out the orders of people he once could order? Yep. Or command? I, give, I actually give him very high marks for that because... You know, uh, I guess maybe it's not revealed in books and stuff, but in my my research, because, you know, it, my three volumes are just on Patton in World War II. I mean, I really do the deep dive. And he is reporting to Bradley on the phone or in person almost every day. You know, it's not an inconvenience when Bradley calls, you know, and if Bradley's not coming to his headquarters, he's going to Bradley's. So he is really doing his due diligence to keep his superior informed um, in fact, during the Battle of the Bulge, uh, in my research too, I, I, I think I should mention that I, what I, the big reveal in my volume two is that Patton's diaries that so much is based on, uh, which were typed up by his wife in 1953, were incredibly embellished. Uh, so I used his original diaries. And so what I found was the very famous prediction of the Battle of the Bulge never occurred. Uh, there's an, an entry in his diary in November 25th. 1944 saying, you know, Troy Middleton's corps is sitting on its butt and the Germans could attack him. And there's an asterisk that said, this is the Rumsfeld, you know, the von Rundstedt attack, you know, a couple of weeks later. Well, that line was actually written. He wrote that line in December 27th of 44. So after he'd relieved Bastogne. So his wife took that line and moved it back uh, to make it look like he was predicting the bulge. And so he was basically, you know, contacting Bradley every day because the question is, if Patton saw this Battle of the Bulge coming, why did he say anything to Bradley? Well, the answer is because he didn't see it coming. And when he's leading that attack to Bastogne, you know, it's really Bradley's theater, but Bradley's only commanding one army, and that's Patton's third army. The first army has been given to Montgomery because it's out of communications range with, with Bradley. And so Patton is in Bradley's office every day, letting him know what he's doing. But if it succeeds, Patton's going to get the credit. And if it fails, Patton's going to get the blame. Um, but he was very respectful of Bradley. And, and Bradley was humiliated losing his first armies. He's an army group commander with one army. And Patton realized how sensitive he was to that humiliation and worked very well with him. Was the first army, is that Courtney Hodges's? That's right. So it's under Bradley during the invasion of, of D-Day. And then once Patton's third army gets activated on August 1st, 1944, they promote Bradley to army group commander. So he's 
in command of those two armies. And then meanwhile, Montgomery's in charge of the British and Canadian army. And the Battle of the Bulge starts December 16th, 44? That is correct. Patton and Montgomery. It's their, their, their tete-a-tete is yeah, such yeah. a great uh, <laughs> part of the movie. Uh, where Patton obviously comes off so much better. And I love the ending, whereas, you know, Montgomery gets promoted to field marshal and, you know, Patton basically gets relieved sure. uh, of everything. Uh, so once again, a case where Patton respects this other person greatly. Uh, Montgomery's the guy that finally beat Rommel. Um, and the, the the sort of the root of their problem occurs while Patton's in Tunisia and Montgomery's kind of pushing up, getting Rommel pushed back. And there's a pause in the battle. So Montgomery actually holds a sort of after-action study. What do we do right? What do we do wrong? How can we use this to fight further? And two Americans attend this meeting, and it's Patton and Beetle Smith, Eisenhower's chief of staff. Who is from and, Indiana, uh, as I recall. Yes, I think so. I, I can't talk to Fender I thought he was from Indianapolis, Indiana. Chris Spangle, our uh, crack research director, will let us know here in a second. But okay. I'm, I'm pretty sure my, that he's oh, from Indianapolis. Yeah, you're going to make me. You mean you haven't read the 900-page <laughs> Beatles book? <laughs> Only the CIA part and, and the part where uh, uh, he and Nixon are talking and, and uh, Beatles Smith says, you know, I'm just Ike's Pratt boy. Ike always <laughs> needed a Pratt boy. And that's exactly what you are, Dick. You're Ike's Pratt boy. Um. So we'll, we'll let him research that while I say that. Uh, so they have this meeting and Beatle Smith and Patton attend. And it was very well known that uh, Montgomery did not allow for smoking of cigarettes in his headquarters. And so Montgomery's up there giving a talk and Patton actually pulls out his metal cigarette case and takes a cigarette out and he's tapping it on the case. And Beatle Smith elbows him and he's like, George, you can't smoke in here. And George says, okay, that's right. And so when it's all over, Patton has lunch with a British general. And he says, what did you think about the fact that you couldn't smoke in the meeting? And he goes, well, I might be old and stupid, but, you know, I'm no fool. Like, I'm not going to do that. Well, the word gets out about this story. And it's like one of those games of telephone where it gets more and more embellished. <laughs> and so by the time it gets to Montgomery, they said, someone asked what Patton thought of your speech, General Montgomery. And he said, well, I might be old and stupid, but it didn't mean anything. Basically saying that what Montgomery said was irrelevant. And so that's really the start of the Patton Montgomery fallout, which will get worse during Sicily. Now, to Montgomery's credit, he told Patton on the way into Sicily, listen, once I get my army on the ground, I'm doing whatever I feel like. They're both under a British general named Alexander, 15th Army Group. Patton, mm -hmm. uh, Montgomery's going to land in Syracuse. Patton's going to land at Jella. They both have armies. And Montgomery says, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm not listening to Alexander. So Patton lands, and he's doing everything Alexander is telling him to do. Meanwhile, Montgomery's taking roads away from him, kind of blocking him. And it takes Patton a little while, but he goes, okay, if he's going to do anything he wants, I'll do the same. Races up to Palermo, makes the race for Messina. And to Montgomery's credit, he says, you know what? I'm getting blocked here. You go ahead and take Messina. And Patton's like, what's his game? Like, he can't believe that, you know, Montgomery's behaving this way. He's being nice. Um, <laughs> they hang out a little bit before D-Day. They make bets on when the war is going to be over. But once they get on the ground in Europe, 
uh, Hatton just sees Montgomery dragging his feet. He's stuck in Khan for weeks. Um, you it know, takes him weeks to to capture Khan when he was supposed to get it on like D Day or something. Yeah. Uh, very and, quick footnote: Walter Beetle Smith, Indianapolis, Indiana. He is an Indianapolis Public Schools graduate. Manual High School, which actually is about two miles from where I'm sitting doing this podcast. So we always like to tout since I'm an IPS grad, fellow IPS grad. So anyway, please go ahead. But I can see why he didn't particularly like Beetle Smith. Uh, not a West Pointer. Not a West Pointer. And he has no, uh, he has a bronze star, but he has no uh, awards for heroism. Like right, no combat. Patton does. Yep. Um so we were talking about Montgomery. Uh, so he sees him as slow, dragging his feet, thinks he ought to be relieved of command. Um, he says in England, he gets a tailor-made uniform, and he says he would wear it with all of his medals just to tick off Montgomery. And repeats that story ad nauseum all the way through <laughs> Europe. And, you know, one time he, he holds a staff meeting, and he, he says, you fine young boys, I want you to jump on Jerry like a mad rabbit and fight him because you're such good young men. And then he kind of shakes himself and says, dudes, I've been hanging out with Montgomery too much. You know, <laughs> humiliating him on every turn. And then by the time you get to the Battle of the Bulge, Patton is driving for Bastogne, while Montgomery says, you know, we're going to just stand still and absorb the German attack, and maybe we'll go on the offensive in three months. You know, Patton relieves Bastogne within a week, um, where Montgomery is not moving, and by not moving, it's, he's allowing the Germans to concentrate on Bastogne, right. making Patton's fight even harder. And so it's at that point that he basically says that Montgomery is nothing but a tired little fart. One other person I want to ask you about before we go down to the Battle of the Bulge is he had it. Patton had an interesting relationship with Theodore Roosevelt Jr. Yeah, yeah. Now Theodore Roosevelt Jr. is colossally courageous and brave to the point of almost just being reckless. Uh, he eventually receives the medal of honor for his combat bravery. Theodore Roosevelt does. And when his dad got it, interestingly enough, decades later, they became mm -hmm. the second father and son to receive the medal of honor with the other being the MacArthur's Omar Bradley said the, the, the bravest act he ever saw was Ted Roosevelt on Utah Beach on D-Day. Mm -hmm. That would seem to be right up George Patton's alley, and they would be fast friends. But they had a rough history, is it fair to say? Well, um, Roosevelt was so, you know, Patton's in command in Morocco. The American army in Tunisia gets their butt kicked by Rommel. Um, and so they relieve the, the commander there, Friendall. And bring Patton in. They bring Patton in to take command of Second Corps. And Roosevelt's writing his wife, going, "Finally, we got a fighter. We got Georgie here. We're really happy." Um, and they have a meeting, and Patton chews him out. And says, "You know, your division looks terrible. We're going to start kicking butt." And I think that was Patton's kind of prejudice against infantry. He was a big tanker, you know. Um, and at one point, I think it's in Sicily that Roosevelt goes up a hill and he's checking out the area, and Patton rolls up. And Roosevelt's not wearing a helmet and Patton chews him out and finds him for it. So I think this was North Africa and Sicily. Patton is so in this warrior mold that it was almost driving everybody else crazy. And he's kind of softens up once he gets to Europe. 
but it's during that real kind of strict uh, attitude. And I, and I don't totally fault Patton for that. The army got itself, it got its butt kicked at Kazarine Pass. And he knew that he kind of needed sort of almost unforgiving discipline to get it on the march again. And so, and that's exactly what he applied ad nauseum. Now there's a, um, I forgot to put this in the book, so I apologize. One of the things that's going to lead, so by the way, we should mention that Roosevelt is the deputy commander of the 1st Infantry Division. Terry Allen is the commander, and they make quite a team. The men love them both. Uh, Roosevelt is a hero from World War One. He's got the experience behind him. And um, at, at one point, uh, Patton has to relieve them of command. And the real reason is we got our butts kicked so bad at Kazarine that Marshall's saying we need combat veterans to come back to the States and train our men. We can't, you know, we're obviously doing something wrong. And uh, Terry Allen's one of the people they choose for that. And, you know, when Montgomery, when Bradley wrote his memoir, he said he relieved, you know, Terry Allen. Bradley had nothing to do with it whatsoever. You know, Patton was going to have to let him go after North Africa, but he begged Eisenhower to let him hold on to him for Sicily because he goes, I need the experience. And they said, okay, but once everything's settled, both, you know, I mean, Terry Allen's going home. But what happened with Roosevelt, and this is the part I forgot to mention in my book, when he goes ashore in Sicily, um, another general comes on, comes up the beach, uh, Wiedemeyer, who's the eyes and ears mm. of Marshall. Mm. And he sees Roosevelt there and the area is getting shelled and he's making sure the troops are coming up. Well, there's a whole bunch of ducks, amphibious trucks, you know, parked on the side of the hill or something. And German artillery goes and blasts them all away. And, you know, he says he reports back to Marshall. He says that was leadership cowardice on Roosevelt's behalf. He should have been moving those that equipment out of the range of German artillery. I think it's a very unfair assessment, but I think that is why he's relieved of command of first ID. He's criticized by this one general who, would, again, didn't have combat experience. Yeah. Alfred, Alfred um, Wiedemeyer, is that it? Alfred yeah. Wiedemeyer? Mm-hmm. Wiedemeyer, who's later going to go on to China, Burma, India, mm-hmm. relieve Joe Stilwell. Um, but Roosevelt refuses to be beaten down. He stays in Europe. And manages to get a position with the 4th Infantry Division, which is going to go in at Utah Beach. And he makes the decision, nobody's ordering him to, he makes the decision to go in with one of the one of the first waves. I think it was on the exact first wave. And I have read accounts of like a tanker on Utah Beach that he says he's coming up the beach and he hears this pounding on the hull. And he pops the thing and there's Roosevelt hitting the front of the tank with a cane. And pointing at German <laughs> positions. So he turns and he knocks out the German position and he goes to say thank you. And Roosevelt's walking down the beach to talk to somebody else. I mean, Roosevelt eventually perishes very quickly after that uh, due to yeah. a heart attack. Uh, Correct. Not a combat injury per se, but his heart was bad beforehand. You could uh, say it was a combat injury because the man had seen so much combat, oh, it point, put a stress on his body. Point well know? taken. Yeah, and, and it wasn't like his father was physically fit. I mean, he was physically fit, but he wasn't healthy. He had all kinds of of health problems. Why did Patton admire Rommel so much? Because he basically encompassed everything he wanted to be. He commanded tanks. He was flanking the enemy. You know, he was doing these great offensives in the desert. And that was basically the, the one general that I, the Western allies identified with because he was always 
Mbappe's fighting either in France in 1940, in the desert, 41, 42, 43, uh, and then again, France again in 44. Uh, the Russians probably had nothing to do with Rommel. They couldn't, they, his name didn't mean anything to them, but that was the one name. Because you realize during the fighting in North Africa, that's the only place the British are really engaging the Germans and not doing it well. They keep getting flanked by Rommel. And so that is the model. In fact, the whole U.S. Army basically feels this way. And when they start designing our tank units, we're modeling them after the German panzer units. What we didn't realize with the Germans, well, the way they were designing their units when we got it, they'd been so pummeled on the Russian front. They were kind of sticking them, you know, making the units smaller. And we thought, well, that's the way to go. But they were just doing it because of a lack of tanks. Mm-hmm. So it was something we kind of had to unlearn. And that was one of the reasons we got our butts kicked at Kazarine, because we treated our tanks almost like cavalry units, like having the tanks charge. And what we have to do is redesign our tank units in what's called a triangular unit, where we increase the amount of infantry and artillery to a tank division so it's more balanced. Very quickly, would you what grade would you give Patton for his performance on in North Africa? What grade would you give him for his performance in Sicily? I give him a B plus in North Africa because he does take a defeated unit and turn it around, puts it on the offensive. Um, He never achieves the breakout that he really wanted to because he was up against very experienced veteran troops with his relatively green troops. Uh, We're still trying to figure out the way our equipment works, where the Germans are masters of that. The victory at El Guitar really is Terry Allen's first infantry division victory. Patton gives him all the supplies he needs to make it possible, but that's really Terry Allen. So that's North Africa. What was the the other within Europe? Which grade, what grade would you give him for Sicily? I'd probably give him an A uh, with the exception of two slapping incidents. Um, He, he is right there on the front lines in the very first days at the battle of Jella. Um, He is actually helping guys place mortars He's up in buildings with artillery spotters, helping them spot German, you know, tanks that are out on the field. I mean, he's right there. Um, and he is everywhere around the battlefield, urging his troops forward. Um, and he, you know, he gets the ultimate victory. He captures Palermo, which enables him to capture Messina because he's going to do something no other general's done. And that's make amphibious assaults behind the German lines. He's going to do three of them. Uh, one goes a little bit short. The second one, the famous one at Brollo, is almost a knockout punch, but the troops on the ground, their radio breaks down. They can't call in the naval fire Mm. to stop the Germans. And then the third one, the Germans had already pulled back, but it was a good experience for the troops to be doing all these amphibious landings. He's really prepping the U.S. Army for future amphibious assaults. The slapping incidents. Did the punishment fit the crime? And did the the American command sort of split like there's no way in hell you could ever do this? Or sometimes you got to kick somebody's, you know what, to get them to to fight. It was a real interesting aspect of Patton's career that is, you know, your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. And it appeared to be the case in Sicily for these two young men. There was an officer and I write about in the book who kind of blamed himself. Uh, because right before the first slapping incident, you know, Patton came upon him and he asked him how things were going. And he says, not good. We've got so many gold bricks in our army. Guys are shirking duty, not fighting. I don't know what to do about it. And Patton's like, you know, 
don't worry, we're going to fix this. And I actually interviewed a tanker from the Second Armored Division who fought North Africa and all across Europe. And he said when they were coming in in Sicily, his ship got damaged. He made it ashore with another fellow tanker. And then they went and hid it out in a village and just let the war go on. And they said when army trucks would pass by, they'd run after them and say, throw us sea rations. And they would. And then finally, he said one day, these MPs came through the town and they said, go and join your unit and we won't ask any questions, you know, or we will court-martial you. And so he went and rejoined his unit. So, I mean, I have witnesses saying, yeah, that was a problem. Um, Having said that, you know, Patton did overreact. He was in a hospital. These were wounded people. He knew what, you know, uh, Mm. psychiatric injuries were from World War I. But he said that, you know, there was a guy in World War I that was suffering and committed suicide. And he felt that someone had just slapped him and said, you know, get your act together. He would have not, he would have not have done that. I think that was an excuse after the matter. Did the punishment fit the crime? So the punishment was a reprimand from Eisenhower. Um, And then, you know, he, one of Patton's fellow officers recommends he apologizes to the troops. So that was not Eisenhower's orders. That was something Patton did on his own initiative. Um, But Yes, the punishment did fit the crime because Patton just is humiliated after this. And it's almost like you're dealing with a person who has the potential to be paranoid. So whatever light sentence you give him, he's going to internalize and implode. Um, like I said, he, he drank way too much. Other officers didn't want him visiting their headquarters because he would drink all their booze. And Bradley even says when he gets that command in Europe, um, he goes to visit Patton and he's worried for Patton's life. He's like, I've never seen a person so depressed and I'm really worried about him. So the punishment really ground him down and put the thought in him like, I, I'm never going to do anything like this again. And to his credit, all through the European campaign, he is going into hospitals, into psychiatric wards, visiting those kind of soldiers and treating them with dignity and respect. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is historian Kevin Hemel. We have a few more minutes with him, even though I'm, I think I'm keeping him longer than I pledged to, but he, this is a wonderful I love this com- stuff. Don't worry. <laughs> so there's an entire deception campaign prior to D-Day. I believe it's called Operation Fortitude. Correct. And Patton is quote unquote in command of, of it, but he's in command of it, not only because he's maybe, you know, was told to stand in the corner after to the slapping incidents, but also because of the Germans' belief that he is their best general and he's going to lead whatever big effort they have in Europe. Are those two statements correct in your view? And how did Operation Fortitude contribute to the success of D-Day? Sure. So the first one, not exactly. And, and that's one of the things I'm always battling against the movie Patton. People believe that everything in that movie is fact. From the moment he got to Europe, they told him, and they were telling him before, you're in command of Third Army. And so that is what he's spending all of his time doing. In the movie, they're telling him to be quiet and sit in the corner. But in reality, he's training Third Army for combat. Um, you know, and a, a reporter came to me one time and said, you know, we're doing a story on fortitude. And we want to say all the stuff Patton did, you know, to, to, to deceive the journey. He didn't do anything. They're sending all these fake transmissions <laughs> The only thing he did during the entire campaign, during the time, his time in England, was he went to an airbase in East Anglia and watched airplanes take off. 
and they've reported the you know, patents here, you know. But that kind of brings us to the Operation Fortitude and patents being revealed um, because of the Nutsford incident, which infuriates Eisenhower. What's really going on here is the British are trying to sell the Germans on patent, and it's not working. You know, they're doing all these transmissions and everything, and nothing is appearing in German communiques. So it looks like when Patton gave that Nutford speech in April of 1944, D-Day is going to be in June, um, it goes in the newspaper. And the next day, the Germans are talking about it. And so it looks like the Fortitude people decided to out Patton without asking Eisenhower's approval. And I think, and, and to me, he almost gets sent home on something he really wasn't at fault for. Um, and, you know, to Eisenhower's credit, when Eisenhower finds out about this, the day he finds out about it, he's on a train coming from the shoreline of England because he has just witnessed a amphibious assault practice at a place called Slapton Sands, in which not only does the Navy accidentally fire on its own troops during the practice, but German patrol boats break through and torpedo a bunch of ships. And there's more casualties to the 4th Infantry Division than they're going to face on, they're going to have on D-Day. So Eisenhower is in a sour, sour mood. And then he gets news that Patton's blabbed and, you know, it just infuriates him beyond words. But it looks like that Nutsford speech is an element of Operation Fortitude. The next part of your question, it is incredibly effective. When the troops come ashore on D-Day, the, the spy network that the British are, you know, are using against the Germans, they basically have all their pretend spies saying, hey, this is a feint. The real invasion's coming in Calais by Patton. You have got to keep your 15th Army there ready because it's coming any minute now. And Hitler abides for weeks. You know, that 15th Army is standing still while all this combat is going on. And, you know, that's one of the reasons Patton's name is not in the press until September 16th. Remember, the invasion's in June. Yeah. Patton comes over in July. Third Army's activated in August 1st, but his name does not appear anywhere because it's working. Is the Battle of the Bulge the shiny diamond in the crown of Patton's career? I mean, whether he predicted the attack with his reference to Frederick the Great or any other sort of like mythology his actual leadership during that battle, where would you rank it in American history? Hmm. It's up there. I, you know, I actually believe Patton's greater move is the sweep across France in August because the American army was so pinned down for so long. And when he takes command and he's ordering his guys to go 50 miles a day, they're like, are you crazy? We can't do that. And he pushes his army across France and it's like something we've never seen before. Like the Germans had done it in 1940, but we were doing it on a much wider scale. Uh, and it just, you know, to read soldiers' letters before August 1st, they're like, God, this war is going to take 10 years. There's no way I'm going to live through this. I'm going to die soon. And as the, his army starts racing across France, they're like, we could be home for Christmas. This is awesome. This is great. You know, it. Just, and the Germans were awed by it yeah, during the war and after the war. Is that correct? It's such Operation mental, Cobra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a mental shift. Now, but getting back to the Battle of the Bulge. So uh, to me, that's that's the big, the, the sweep across France is the big thing. 
because the Battle of the Bulge, in a way, he's just fighting like he's been doing in a different direction. But um, he does turn two thirds of his army north. Um, he had one corps kind of in reserve. He was getting ready for a large attack into Germany called Operation Tink that the whole air forces had set up a three day bombing campaign bigger than Cobra to help break him through. And he was gonna, he had a corps in reserve that he was gonna push through. So basically when the Battle of Bulge occurs, he can take that corps in reserve and just say head north. The, the hard part was he had another corps under Mantinetti, a uh, 12th Corps that's on the southern part of his line, and he's going to pull that one up, uh, you know, pull it out of the line and head that one north. Um, you know, we, a lot of us focus on the, uh, the relief of Bastogne as the great maneuver, but he, and it was actually a two-pronged offensive, one to get to Bastogne and a one further east to capture a town called Eternacht which is in Luxembourg. It's not as well known, but it's basically the shoulder of the German offensive. And the Germans captured it. And if he can take it back, he's going to keep the German attack narrow. They're not going to be able to broaden. Um, and it's going to relieve pressure on that attack in Bastogne. And that is really, you know, he's taking units, mashing them together. Um, it's mostly the 5th Infantry. Uh, and they're able to take that town basically the same day that, that they take Bastogne. And so it's a great relief. It's sort of an unsung part of the Battle of the Bulge, but it's the, the Bastogne relief that gets all the attention. That's the, you know, the, the cavalry coming to the rescue <laughs> to the surrounded men. And it is an impressive attack. Uh, you know, in my study of it, you know, Patton wasn't perfect. He did have some fault. He, he originally said, told the guys they needed to fight around the clock and they kind of burn out. And the Germans launch a number of counterattacks and he realizes he's made a mistake and he just goes to day fighting. Uh, the elements are very harsh on him. Uh, but he, you know, he keeps saying, we're going to get to Bastogne by tonight. You know, it's going to be a one day campaign. Uh, and it really takes him, you know, at least 10 days to really get there. Or no, I'm sorry, it takes 22nd, 23rd, 24th, 25th. It takes him five days to get there. Uh, in fact, while he's attacking towards Bastogne, he gets worried that Eisenhower is going to relieve him. And Eisenhower calls him to see how he's doing. And he goes, please don't relieve me of command. And Eisenhower goes, what are you talking about? He goes, I'm not going as fast as I should. I know I'm going slow. And Eisenhower says, as long as you're moving, George, you're fine. Do not worry about anything. You know, you're pulling off a pretty incredible act. So even while it was happening, Patton did not appreciate what he was achieving because he wanted to achieve it faster. But, you know, as we kind of get away from the bulge, you know, we realize, my God, this was a huge impact on the Germans. It stops them cold. You know, Hitler moves all of his forces from pushing east down to Bastogne because he's like, this is so important, this, this road net that we got to take it away from Patton. And Patton smashes every attempt the Germans make to take it back. And Montgomery is sitting north, not doing too much, whether that's to Patton's delight or Patton's uh, frustration. I guess you could you could interpret that for us. Um, <laughs> Patton dies. And he receives a fourth star. I think in April of forty five. That's correct. That's what you see at the end of the movie uh, where he's there with the Russians. Um, but he dies just seven months, I think, later, December, of December forty five. Yeah. And when he was like the day before he's supposed to leave to go back to the United States, or really close. Yes. He dies in a car wreck. There's been. Um, 
Ugh. He was only 60 when he died. I thought he was older than that, but only 60. I'm 55 and hell, you know, I haven't accomplished nearly as much as Patton did in just the five year difference. Yeah, but I bet you don't smoke as many cigars on a daily basis or drink hard liquor on a daily basis like he did. And I don't I have a meritorious service medal. I do not have a distinguished service cross. That's correct. Uh, there's speculation. Oh, that he was murdered. Yeah, man. targeted. Would you like to take that on real quick? Sure. I get, it all, the time. I get, it, I get it all the time. And I lead, you know, the, the, my patent tour. We have to end at the intersection where the car accident occurred because everybody wants to know that story. Um, so it's a very simple car accident. There was a train crossing. And on the other side of Patton's car where the train is crossing are two trucks. And once the train passes, Patton's driver guns the engine. The first truck on the other side, the engine stalls out. So the truck behind him pulls out into the other lane to go around him and sees this limousine racing at him and he hits the brakes. Patton's driver hits the brakes. The car accident was probably about 35 miles an hour. Um, nobody's really hurt except Patton. Uh, he was thrown forward. He had a big gash on his head that uh, looks like he hit the light, the ceiling light of the car. And that cracks two vertebrae in his neck. Um, uh, Hap Gay is sitting next to him the whole time at One Star General. Uh, ambulance comes, gets him out of there, takes him to the hospital. Um, and he's going to live for about 10 days before he succumbs to basically a blood clot to the brain, which is common in paralysis. But he had been making progress while he's in the hospital. So the first rumor that comes out is done by French communists in the 1970s. And true to fact, uh, there was a salt mine in Germany filled with gold that is relieved by the U.S. Army. In fact, it's the 90th Infantry Division. And there is a very good accounting. Uh, they count every gold bar. They bring it up. They're going to put it in a bank, you know, in Germany for safekeeping. It's very well documented. But the rumor or the, yeah, the rumor sent around by these French communists is that Patton found all this gold and wanted to give it to all the countries of Europe. But Eisenhower said no, therefore he had Patton killed. So that was the first big one. And of course, all the GIs were saying, you know, Eisenhower murdered Patton because he's too much of a troublemaker, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if you want to get mad at this, but, you know, soldiers can sometimes gossip worse than high school girls. Okay. <laughs> they got, they got, high school girls got nothing on guys sitting we're around. We're like the women in Mayberry. Yes. They got nothing on soldiers that are sitting around with nothing to do. Um, and then the second one came out. I think the guy's name is Wilson. I actually helped him with some of his research. So this is a little convoluted. So the idea is that OSS agents were captured by the Russians during World War II. And Stalin approached Wild Bill Donovan, the head of the OSS, and said, we will give you these OSS agents back if you kill Patton. And Donovan knew that Roosevelt loved him, but Truman did not, and that he was going to be out of a job. So what did he have to lose? So he assigned some OSS guys to kill Patton. Um, one of these guys is hiding in the bushes at the train stop and fires some kind of air compression pellet gun that, um, and I remember this is in December in Germany. So the, the mm -hmm. guy said the window was down and he hits Patton in the neck um, and paralyzes Patton. So they rush him to the hospital and Russian agents spray nerve gas through the window uh, <laughs> that eventually kills Patton. <laughs> now, 
So the problem with the first part is have Gage right next to him the whole time, never hears a gun go off or anything. And that's got it's got to be hard to time that shot as the car hits the truck. Uh, but they're like everybody who was there says, no, there's nothing like that. And then as far as Patton being in the hospital, he is on the first floor in the Heidelberg Hospital. Um, it is now German owned. But while it was still part of the U.S. Army, I went there and met with some of the, um, I guess, historians or archivists there. And they showed me the sheet of um, the nurse's sheet. There was a nurse sitting next to Patton 24 hours, you know, 24 seven. Um, and they had to sign in and sign out. So somehow this poison gas got mm. to Patton, but not the, the nurse sitting next to him. So um, with a lot of conspiracy theories, it, it's really kind of based on no evidence and nothing has come forward to say that anything like that is true. It's all speculation. Uh, you know, at, at some point, I mean, when I was reading this book about Patton's assassination, uh, he says there needs to be an investigation into this. I'm like, why? You just did one and didn't come up with anything. <laughs> so, but people are fascinated with conspiracy theories and that kind of stuff. But it was a simple car accident. The movie. Oh, yeah. I don't know if there's any one movie that's done more for one American figure in all of our history. I can't think if there has been one that has so pushed someone almost, you know, to, like I said at the beginning, legendary status. What do you think of the movie? Is it tough for you as a historian who knows the whole story to watch it and go, oh, my God, that's not even close? Uh, and was Patton, do you think Patton was deserving? Of the, of the somewhat, hagiographic treatment he received in the 1970 movie. So first, when I first saw it, I loved the movie. I've seen it, you know, I can't even tell you how many times. Uh, and I'll tell you a funny story about that in a second. Um, as I've done all my research, I see the gaping holes. Uh, but what they were researching and what they knew at the time was really in line. Like there's a famous scene where he goes into Palermo in Sicily, and they say, "Hey, there's a message." Don't take Palermo. And he says, what do you want me to do? Give it back, which is a great line. But that was actually Trier in Germany when that exchange happened. And, and they're movie guys. They've got two and a half hours to make a movie of, of something that happens over a span of four or five years. Um, so a lot of that I will excuse. Um, you know, Patton had a high-pitched voice, you know, that raspy thing. Uh, George C. Scott is about 10 years younger than Patton at the time. So he looks a lot bolder, you know, heavy man stance, all that kind of stuff. Um, what was the thing? Oh, so on my tours of General Patton's battlefields, I sit up front with the driver and I play the movie above me and I can't see it. But I've heard the movie about as many times as I've seen it, but I hadn't watched it in decades. And so when volume two of Patton's War came out, I said, you know what, I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to just sit down and watch Patton, you know. And I'm watching the very beginning, and that's where Patton's in Morocco watching the Moroccan troops go by. And that's where he says, you know, it's a combination of Hollywood and, and the Bible. And I'm flabbergasted because I had gone to Morocco and I actually teamed up with an army captain at the US American embassy. And we went to the palace in Rabat and we gave up our passports to a guard and they let us in the palace for the king, and they have an active king ruling Morocco, mm -hmm. the palace has two walls or two encircling walls. And so we were able to go through the first wall. You're not, no one's allowed to go through the second wall. That's where the king lives. 
And we walk through and we see all the guards in the different colored outfits. And we see all the buildings. So years later, I'm sitting there watching the movie and I'm like, oh my God, they filmed it at the King's Palace. I recognize the walls, the buildings, everything. And I always wondered why that was in the movie because it's kind of long. Agreed. It doesn't really, it's not very revealing, but I realized they must have paid a ton of money to get those <laughs> shots and they were going to put them in the movie. <laughs> so I would say like one of the big discrepancies is when they tell George that they're getting ready to break out of France and they need an old cavalryman to do it. Um, and then he says, Eisenhower figured that out six months ago in, in London and Patton's all mad that he's, you know, that dirty son of, and then he catches himself. So that's all fiction. Patton knew he was going to be going to the continent fighting. He was training third army that whole time up there, you know, where they say he's just kind of sitting on his hands so that that was probably one of the biggest disservices to history, but it's a movie. Oh, and I got to tell you the other one because I get this all the time, and it drives me crazy. They always say that <laughs> Willie was named after William the Conqueror. Okay, the dog. Yeah. No, the dog was not named after William the Conqueror. Uh, he was named after a song Patton heard in like 1927 at a polo match, being sung by a young African American lad. And, and Patton remembered the lyrics. It was, we, Willie, we, does this and that. And that is where the dog got its name. True or false? When Patton was complaining about a lack of air cover to a British uh, Air Corps officer, right. he was a, they were attacked by Nazi planes. Yes. So um, that's, they, they kind of molded a few things in there. That is true that they the, one of the British generals, Cunningham, had written a letter saying that, you know, it's the fault of the infantry on the ground blaming us. And Patton was furious about it. And they did have a meeting and the American generals were there, the air generals, and they promised Patton that, you know, we've got air supremacy and all this stuff. And the Germans came and bombed down the street. Now in the movie, he's jumping out the window and shooting mm -hmm. back at him and everything. Uh, they're in the office. They hear the explosions. And I think I've had two eyewitnesses uh, talk to me about it. And they said the, the air generals went running out of his office and like over their shoulder, they said, we'll get you more air cover. <laughs> um, and so when Patton says, if I could get those pilots, those German pilots, I'd give them each a medal. It wasn't for their bravery of bombing. It was oh, for yeah. helping him win the argument. Because like I said, the bombing was down the street. It wasn't on his headquarters, but he's like, Hey, the Germans are bombing us. They said, no, we got air control everywhere. Boom, down the street. So, yes, that happened. True or false, Patton shot two mules and threw them over a bridge. False, 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 false. Um, there's one account where he said that said he ordered some people to shoot the mules. But that is very shady at best. He never mentions it in his letters or diaries. Um there was an account by a guy with the 3rd Infantry Division that said they were going up this hill on the side of a cliff, and there was a guy with a cart and a horse, uh, very similar. And Patton's uh, command vehicle basically pushes it off the road, and the man and the horse and the cart wheel just tumble down the side of a cliff, killing them. And the soldiers in the area were like, oh, my God, the, the general just killed a civilian. So... That's kind of worse than shooting two mules on a bridge. 
Last question before we get to the five questions we ask all our guests, and I promise to leave you alone after that. You've been very <laughs> kind with your time. This is a fabulous, fabulous discussion. Um, Patton, overrated, underrated, or just right? I shouldn't be quiet for so long here. Um, a lot of people have confronted me with that question. You know, actually, they say they think he's overrated. Um, I don't know that anybody could le- could could live up to the adoration and the sort of like iconic creation that is the patent that's in a lot of people's heads. But he did some pretty amazing things on the battlefield. Uh, you know, he really was the master of his craft. Um, so Very personally brave. Like, what? Very personally brave. Yeah. I mean, and, I, you know, the, you, we're talking about the movie. The movie does not record all of its frontline visits, him coming under fire. And that was that's a big part of my books in North Africa. The troops were moving fast enough. So he has his driver lead the troops. He's sitting in the car leading troops through minefields for miles. And uh, but he does it three times. And the third time he's doing it, he says, you know what? We're about to meet up with the British. Turn around. If they see a two-star or three-star general bleeding the troops, that's going to be terrible for the American army. So he turns around, and within 20 minutes, the Americans meet up with the British. And I think that's why you never hear detailed stories of that meeting up, you know. So you say just right? just right? Yeah, because he's done a lot of brave things that have not been well recorded until everybody reads my books. <laughs> We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Kevin Hemel, are you ready? I am I am ready. Start the clock. What was your first job? Well, babysitting, but uh, my first really kind of paid go to the place. I worked at a garden center, uh, and I spent a lot of time loading bags of rocks onto backs of trucks. Very intellectually uh, enhancing. What was your first concert? Oh, God, please don't. I was tricked into this by my friend Eric Metz. I thought we were going to see a group called Till Tuesday. I was a freshman in college. Oh, yeah. It was Rick Springfield. And um, I told him that I would stay for the Till Tuesday part, and then we would just get drunk for the rest of the concert. I look back on the ticket. Sponsored by Mad, Mothers of Drunk Driving. So it was <laughs> Mothers Against Drunk Driving. It was three college guys in a stadium filled with 13-year-old girls and their dads. It was humiliating. (laughs) Completely agree. (laughs) If you could suggest any book for someone to read besides the marvelous ones that you write. Thank you. Which book would you recommend? I'll make two. For history, uh, there's a book. I can't believe I read this book called Freedom at Midnight. It's about the independence movement of India led by Mohatnas Gandhi. And I saw it in a used bookstore and I picked it up and looked at it. I said, to God, who would ever read a book like that? And as I was putting it back on the shelf, I realized that the two authors had also written a very famous book called Is Paris Burning? About yeah. the Allies retaking Paris. So I pulled the book out. I started reading. I could not put it down and read the whole thing. Uh, Freedom at Midnight. Uh, I just... Not my topic, not my interest, and I could not put the book down. And then in the fiction world, my favorite book of all time is Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, 
which is a very sarcastic and black humor book about the U.S. military in World War II. Number four, this is a toughie. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? You know, I read this story in American Heritage. Like they were, they asked historians if the same sure. question. And this one historian said he wanted to go. I think it was a red, the Redskins were playing the Giants. And the announcement came out that the, no, it was, it was a baseball game. The Senators maybe were playing the Red Sox. And the announcement came that Japan had surrendered. And everybody stood up and sang the national anthem. And it was like the most impassioned singing of the national anthem ever. So that would be, I would have to admit, that would be one of the tops. Although, um, yeah, I guess I'll just, I'll leave it at that. I mean, uh, yeah. That's a good, no, that's an excellent one. Okay. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, talk about anything you want. Whom would you choose? <laughs> Turn the microphone off. <laughs> uh, it would, it would definitely be Steven Spielberg. Cause man, have I got a great mini series for you. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today has been Kevin Hemel. He's a historian for the United States Army, and as you've just learned, he is the world's foremost authority on the life, career, and legacy of General George S. Patton. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. It was a fun discussion. Thank you, man. It was was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.